Beer Vana podcast. Bum, 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 bum. <laughs> <laughs> That's our special intro for today's uh, podcast. Yeah, I wonder how many of the old timers recognized it. Uh, I didn't. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it sounded very um, jaunty. It's very jaunty. Very British. Very British. Uh, and very BBC when there was no competition. And the thing is, everybody's already seen the title to the pod, so they know that it's probably a reference to Michael Jackson, the Which famous beer writer. Which it is. And it is. And we're taking a little bit of a risk because we just yanked that off the intertubes. Fair use, fair use. Fair, fair use, fair use. Please don't sue uh, us, Channel copyrights, 4. Copyrights expired. Yeah, um, that's that's from 1989, so maybe we're okay. Yeah, and since we're commenting about it, that turns into a fair use usage. Correct. Did we use the whole thing? Uh, no, no, of course not. No. no. <laughs> so <laughs> Surely that's, not. So the show was... It was called uh, The Beer Hunter. The Beer Hunter. Yeah. Six episodes, and we'll talk a little bit about that later. All right. Uh, So welcome to the Beer Vana podcast. It's good to see you again. It's been a while, actually. It has. We pumped out some podcasts, but that was uh, strategically planned to disguise the fact that we weren't actually in in studio podcasting. If there were podcast reviews, the first word uh, a reviewer would use to describe our podcast is erratic. And the, and the second word they use is crap, but, <laughs> but, that's, but that's our but that's our uh, forte. Yeah, uh, we're good at crap. Uh, so, welcome to the Beer Fauna Podcast. With me, of course, is Jeff Allworth, author of Secrets of Master Brewers, The Beer Bible, and Cider Made Simple. You can find him blogging at Beervana and tweeting at at Beervana. That's right. I always say that. And you are our, uh, Patrick Emerson. Yes, still. E- economics professor at Oregon State University. Mm-hmm. And you can find him tweeting at, at Beeronomics. On occasion, you can. Yeah, it's slowed down a little bit. Your life is getting a little... One of the reasons we're not doing this so often is because your life is full. Oh, full bl- and replete. Oh, blame me. Full and replete. Blame me. I like that. Uh, the, I have the email evidence to suggest it's not entirely my fault. <laughs> <laughs> Although it is true that this is the winter term. <laughs> we're like rats from a stinking erratic crap ship. That's what we're, <laughs> we're trying to flee this thing. <laughs> Pretty soon the Russian hackers will have those emails and be publishing them on WikiLeaks. Yeah, well, then we're all dead. Uh, it is winter term, which is very busy. And so, yes, this 10-week period between the, end, the beginning of January and the uh, middle of March is is tough, but we're here because right. because we are professionals. Um, we are indeed. Yeah. So uh, today uh, we're going to talk about Michael Jackson, but before we do that, I have my <laughs> my as you call it, listicle question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, because it was so successful last time. That's right. Our our chatter. Although our chatter was no, that was yeah, that was a couple of pods ago because we had those special saddle pods. Right. Um, we're back in Portland. Uh, where it, we just had a snowmageddon part three. Two inches yeah. of snow. My God. So there was a, that was another problem with the pot. There was a snow day on Wednesday for my kids and then a late start yesterday. 
uh, chaos, just chaos. Chaos. Yeah. It does throw the city into a turmoil. It was quite lovely, though. White and nice, but it's now melting. Yeah. Although we might get some more. Um, <clears throat> so in that spirit, let's take you to a desert island, warm and sunny, uh, mm-hmm. where you have access to nothing, uh, and uh, except that you get to cultivate your own hops. So, <laughs> so the question is, what, uh, I don't know how many we want to do, five? What five hops would you keep with you if you found yourself on a desert island. If you had to save the future of beer for all humanity after the apocalypse, oh you, man. You save five hop strains, what hop strains would they be? Uh it, it took a slight curveball there. If I was saving it for humanity, I might be slightly more judicious. No, 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 no. Be selfish though. Right. <laughs> that, was that, was that the curveball? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh no no I didn't mean I didn't mean that. Uh, uh, because because you know better than than humanity, okay. Than the average person. Well, these things are personal, so uh, my list will be personal, I guess. Right. Uh, and then I'll hear yours. I yeah. bet we have a few the same. Yeah, I'm probably a few the same. Too different. So I'm definitely going to go with Cascade, which right. is a utility hop for American style beers that can't be beat. Yeah, has a pure taste, works great in bittering, works great in late edition. Amazing yeah. hop. Okay. Uh, I'm going to go with Saws hops, which is a classic variety it's also very versatile and one of the most distinctive flavors okay we're two for two by the way i might as well not just all right go ahead all right two for two although yeah okay go ahead i'm gonna go so i'm going going back to an american hop and i think i think in the american hops we have slightly different tastes Mm -hmm. i'm gonna go with my other big fave which is uh, amarillo yeah i think that's probably not gonna be not gonna be on my list excellent but i but i i would have guessed yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if other people tasted Sriracha Ace the way I do, I would probably have that on there. But we've already discussed how you get dill, and that's terrible. But you don't care about me. You care about yourself. You're on your own desert island. I'm I'll, not go doing back, I'll go back to your own desert island. I'm not, I'm not doing Sriracha Ace. Okay. In case somebody visits. Right. Some, you wash, if you washed up on the shore. <laughs> you want to be a good host. That's right. <laughs> uh, so that's three. Um, I'm definitely going to go with an English hop. And I guess I'll go with... I'm going to... I'm going to go with Challenger. Mm, okay. Goldings are great, but you're going to go with Goldings. I'm going to go with Goldings. <laughs> i got nothing left. And uh, I think Challenger is a wonderful hop that's quite versatile yeah. and uh, can do, can do a, a bunch of interesting things. So I'm going to go with that. And then my last hop, uh, I should go with a German hop, right? One should go with a German hop, like Hollertau, Mittelfruh. But I'm not gonna, <laughs> because well set up. Yeah, uh, I'm gonna go with um, I'm gonna go back to America, because I'm an American, yeah. and if a German were doing this, don't you want to go like the South Pacific at all? No, no, no I do, I do not. Absolutely do not. Um, I, yeah, I think the last American hop I will go with is actually you. You say, and I've got to ponder this because I got a couple of candidates. Okay, so uh, I was thinking about the styles of beer I'd want to be able to make for myself. Right. Right. So that's where the Saz comes in. So you want to have the nice Pilsners. Uh, that's where the East Kent Goldings come in. It's really good. Yeah, I'm going <laughs> to... No, no, I know my no. last hop in it. It's not from America. <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, so I want my English style ale. So the East Kent Goldings are going to help me there. Uh, Cascade, of course, because... It's just good for everything, um, and you can just brew anything with that. Uh, this is where uh, I get a little bit conflicted about where I'm going to go. I was thinking mosaic. Mm, yeah, you're really on your own there. 
if I can see your island, I'm not going over there because you may have made something with mosaic. <laughs> Which I know is one of your favorites. <laughs> uh, um, yeah, and I'm conflicted about Go ahead. Now I'm conflicted about my last one. All right. My last one, I'm going to go with Strisselspalt. Yeah, no one saw that coming, did no, they? No one saw that coming. <laughs> that's a, uh, that's, a, <laughs> that's a, a French style, and ah, okay. uh, it's kind of wildflowery, grassy, and it's quite good for Belgian style ales, and including uh, it works really well in, in Saison. So, so if you ever find that hop, it, it's a wonderful Saison hop. And when you said that thing about what styles, I'm thinking, by God, I got to have a Saison hop in there. Yeah. Well, what I was thinking is that I can have my Cascades, and then I can kind of juice it up with some mosaic. So that, that I can have my sort of more modern IPAs and my old classic pale ale all right there. Right. Uh, I think I will go for Holotow. Oh. Well, well maybe I'll come because to Because it's then. a desert island. It's going to be hot. I want to have a lot of nice, you know, maybe mm-hmm. make a nice Hellas, you know. It's a great hop. It is, like Saws, you can, it's a low alpha hop. So it, 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 it's a, you can use it dual purpose. If you have a ton of it, you can use it to bitter. It's a great hop. Yeah. Nothing so, wrong with that. So those are, my, those are my five. In those years. You did five already? I yeah. did five. All right. Uh, so our islands are pretty close, similar, except you're going to be like Spitzel fruit hops, and I'm going to have my <laughs> mosaics coming. <laughs> Otherwise, yes. pretty close. And you're, and you're going to have your uh, East Kent Golding, so I'm going to have my Challenger, which actually works out really well. So when we want to trade, we, you know, we, can, that's we right. can have really nice And English that's the show. basis of a market economy is originally this barter. So that's how I, that's how I build up my... In my lectures, we start with the desert island and start trading. Oh, that's fascinating. And then we add some currency, and then we go on from there. So now we know. So, okay, you can come for my EKG beers, and I'll come for your challengers. And my Strizzle Spalt. <laughs> your Strizzle Spalt. <laughs> uh, I, yeah, maybe I like that. I don't know. Yeah, you'll love that. It's great. <laughs> All right. So uh, uh, let's get back to our, uh, our topic of the day. Uh, we're going to delve into a subject near and dear to Jeff's heart. Uh, the groundbreaking writing of Michael Jackson. Uh, and um, no Michael Jackson, the pop star pun allowed, I've that, been told. That's right. <laughs> so That's a tired joke. <laughs> people wrote about beer before Jackson, but the way he approached the subject changed. Not just beer writing, but beer itself. We'll discuss his background, how he introduced uh, the world to style, his books, and his legacy. I know you, you talk about Michael Jackson a lot, especially as you were trying to think about how to organize the beer Bible. Uh, around styles and as i understand michael jackson had a big uh role in that and we'll talk about that later excellent yeah he did and we will that's sweet it's an important one um, right. you're, you're one of those folks who has not actually read michael jackson but uh benefit from him and i think many people are in this camp especially or 11 years after his death um and probably many people who came to beer in the last 11 years haven't picked up a jackson book because they fall further and further out of date right but uh, his his importance to uh, everything about modern beer is is worth exploring. So we'll do that today. All right, that sounds good. But first, of course, the news. All right, the first news item is uh, comes from the the old country and our good friends at. Uh, uh, Fuller's in Dark Star. So this week there was a minor British, uh, minor, uh, 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 <laughs> a British acquisition that caught our eye. Uh, London's Fuller's Brewery uh, bought an early English craft brewery. <laughs> when I wrote that, I thought it might be a challenge. 
a brewery called Dark Star from Sussex. There you are. <laughs> I'm not going to try that as a possessive. Yeah, Sussex says. That's uh, hard. And we know Dark Star well because when you did your tour for the Beer Bible that I uh, uh, acted as chauffeur for, uh, that was actually the first non-London brewery we, we visited was Dark Star, if, if memory serves. Right. We, we did Fuller's and then we drove to Brighton. And I, I also did uh, Meantime, but um, it was too early in the morning for you to go. It was really early in the morning. It was. Yeah. Uh, and then we drove down to and did Dark Star, so they were almost back to back for us. Yeah, and we, yeah. So and we, got we to were talk to both of them, and it was a really nice uh, contrast because Fuller's is a brewery. It's hard to think of an equivalent in the United States. An old legacy brewer brewing traditional styles uh, at a brewery that's been in the same place for hundreds of years. Um, and Dark Star is a modern upstart, really modeled after U.S. craft brewing. Mm-hmm. Uh, had really interesting, excellent beers. Um, uh, and so as a contrast, it's interesting, but I, I will say that um, Fuller, Fuller's, at least from from what we understood, was always uh, very good to craft brewing and modern craft brewing in, in the UK and collaborated and shared. And um, so uh, it's kind of a neat, a neat thing. Yeah, I think it makes a lot of sense as a business venture um, and presumably it makes good sense for Darkstar, who sold uh, to Fuller's. And uh, it sounds like their plan is not to absorb the brewery, but let this is in a, in a way that's mm-hmm. become more typical in the United States, um, not just absorb the brand, but leave the brewery down in, in uh, Sussex and let them keep making the beer and, and uh, have you know that, that relationship. Yeah, because in a different way to sort of macro brewers in the U.S., but still Fuller's can't just all of a sudden pump out a whole bunch of like big American style IPAs and stuff and, right. and, and sort of be credible and legitimate. Um, and it damages have, their own product yeah, which because is they this. have a very, very solid product and a solid reputation that that's different. Yeah. So it makes a lot of sense to, um, uh, to acquire uh, an established brewer like that. Uh, and Dr. Star brews great beer. Yeah. At least they did. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure it's even better now. I'll do the announcement on the second one, and then I'm going to immediately pose a question to you about what it means. Uh-oh. Uh, we had here in the Pacific Northwest an interesting uh, series of acquisitions by distributors. So we have a, the largest Oregon distributor is called Columbia, and they bought a Portland. They're in Portland, and they bought a Portland, another Portland distributor called General. Mm-hmm. And then a couple of weeks later, they bought uh, a distributor in Washington called. Uh, Marine View, uh, which is in the southern Puget Sound. So Olympia, Tacoma area. Right, I guess so. Uh, I don't know that we're... I'm unfamiliar with the distributors of yeah. Washington, but anyway. Um, and, and I read in one story, we'll give Columbia 40% of the market in Washington. And I don't know what they have in Oregon, but probably a wow. sizable chunk. So... Wait a minute, Columbia is already in Washington. I guess they're already okay. in Washington. Yeah, yeah. So that's what I took away from that again. I'm ignorant entirely about Washington. Mm-hmm. So so my question is, um, you know, you know a lot about uh, consolidation and access to market, and you know enough about distribution to hazard a guess, but is this, uh, is this a worrying sign? Well, yeah. I mean, it's complicated, right? So part of distribution certainly is subject to economies of scale, so it makes sense potentially to have fewer uh uh, competitors, but the other side of it is the portfolio side. So if you're an individual brewer and you want 
to get your beer on shelves and um, you really rely on the distributor you choose to promote your beer amongst its entire portfolio which is a tricky a tricky business yeah <clears throat> so i it uh in in oregon at least you also have another uh outlet which is you can self-distribute up to a uh, a certain volume right um right so uh so i suppose there is there is that but that makes it very tricky to get to get space because uh, restaurants and bars and, and and retail outlets have have relationships with distributors so yeah. so it's a it's a tangled web i would say that it's um uh i'm going to take a neutral position on it right now because it's sort of too early to tell i'm not sure i, I guess the, the the counterfactual is that you have a whole bunch of small distributors all sort of competing amongst each other with smaller portfolios it's not entirely clear to me that that is a better situation than fewer with with a bigger portfolio because you've got sort of the competing leverage versus dilution effect if that makes sense um uh the bigger distributors potentially have more leverage and if they decide to push you they're going to have more oomph right but they also have bigger portfolios so whether they decide to push you and how they treat you relative to their other fears in the portfolio is is a question right yeah, I talked to some of the brewers involved uh, with General who, mm-hmm. who got sold, and yeah, they reflected on whether it makes sense to go for a little little distributor who has, as you say, uh, less access to retail mm-hmm. establishments than, of course, Columbia, who has access to everybody. So if you're right. at one of these uh, little littler distributors, you're not going to walk into the Chili's chain and say, "Can we stock you up?" That's something that they just don't have access to. Yeah. So. Uh, so then you have to, as a brewer, you have to make a decision. Like, what's our growth curve look like? Are we going to be super ginormous later and that's going to be a problem because we can't get to these? Or if we're going to stay small, does that mean uh, we don't want to get lost in a big book? Which when in, yeah, in distributors, give, they call the portfolio a book. Right. Uh, yeah, to give an example, it's I suppose, is let's suppose you have you know you have a buzz beer a beer that sort of catches the zeitgeist for whatever reason and it becomes really popular now being with a big distributor there is probably helpful because right if if you if they've got it they can push it everywhere for you uh but let's suppose you're having trouble making that buzz or getting getting attention uh and um that means that you might just get forgotten in a big distributor's portfolio and a little distributor that's hustling out there might might be a good choice for you but it's it's hard to know and it's a lot of i mean that's sort of an ex post story right you don't know yeah uh, you'd like to run the experiment both ways and see what happens yeah so it's 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 a complicated it's a very complicated market and market structure and it's it's hard to to predict this is good i'll have to i can i can uh, develop a, a model for it Oh, very cool. Yeah, we're going to get we'll at decide. some point in the in the not distant future, we're going to get some distributors uh, talking to us, at least uh, get an inside view, because it is one of the most interesting parts of the beer uh, world and really unexplored. So we, we need to we need to get on that. We'll yeah. put that on the, the list for 2018. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, one thing you might know the answer to, but I was w- wondering myself is there are a few local breweries who do self-distribution in their little trucks. Oh yeah, putter, absolutely. Putter about. My question is this: Now, suppose that uh, me and my buddy who runs another brewery down the street want to both self-distribute. Can we use the same truck? Like, can I just kind of roll up to his brewery and throw some kegs in there too, and we'll just take them out around? 
I have no idea. You're right. <laughs> like, that's how, an how obvious can you, question. Yeah, how much can you sort of push this self-distribution thing? I was wondering. It's like, it'd be nice to be able to share trucks. Like if on the same day, we don't have this double beer, but can I use his truck tomorrow and he use it? You know, can we share a truck? I don't know. That's interesting. I do know that. So probably that's going to be a state-by-state state thing. And I do know yeah, that. No, in, I'm talking about in Oregon, yeah. Yeah, in, in uh, Astoria, uh, uh, Fort George had was confronted with this, this issue. Mm-hmm. And they were having a hard time finding distributors to get out to all the places on the the Astoria is in the northwest corner of the state mm-hmm. on the coast. And so they started their own distributor. Ah. So you, that's like, I don't, it's not exactly the question you answered, asked, but it's related. But so it's a separate company. Yes. Uh, okay. Yeah. That's a good way to go too. Yeah. Interesting. All right. Uh, next one. Oh yes. This one. Uh, in fact, I was just driving down the street, uh, where I can't remember where I was, but somewhere in town and the big billboard that said, I don't know, something like go grab a stone. And it had a big can that said stone on it. Yes. Uh, and it was not stone brewing company of san diego california or not quite san diego right uh it was keystone light <laughs> <laughs> yep and stone brewing is not happy right uh, so they're not changing the name of keystone to stone but they're they are uh creating packaging and marketing that's all about the stone part of the keystone uh grab some stones or go i don't know yeah exactly yeah. uh and um it's quite uh, obvious uh, now whether they're deliberately trying to infringe upon Stone's trademark is is not clear, but I think that Stone has a pretty good case. Yeah, so Stone is so Stone has decided to sue Keystone uh, Miller Coors. Oh yeah, I buried the lead. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yes, <laughs> thank you, Mr. Uh, Reporter. And uh, that came out recently, which was a fascinating thing, and um, we'll see how that goes. I, I it's just you don't usually see. It's one of those. Uh, Man bites dog stories. You don't see a little guy suing a big guy like that yeah. for copyright. But here's the thing. So clearly, this is not unexpected. I mean, there's no way I can imagine that. By the way, who Miller Coors? Uh, I was like, who's Keystone? Miller Coors. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, in Miller Coors, this is a huge national campaign they decided. So they're sitting around thinking about this, and someone's got to say, uh, "By the way, what do you think's going to happen with Stone?" And they're like, oh, "Yeah, I'll probably sue us, but they're going to go nowhere, yeah. right? They're they, we got lawyers on retainer. We can." We can counter sue them to death or something. Uh, so clearly, there's a corporate decision here that says, "Yeah, we're we don't care. <laughs> yeah. We know this is going to happen, and we don't care." I think that's right. And uh, in all the stuff I was reading about it, because it was super interesting to me, um, I think I read that that Miller Coors uh, or whoever owned the brand um, ten years ago or something, five or ten years ago, actually applied for uh, the trademark on stones and was rejected. Uh, and I think for this very reason. Yeah, I, I seem to recall so reading that as well. They, I'm yes, of course they know. Stone is the one of the most important breweries in America. It's uh, probably certainly the top twenty biggest breweries in America, mm-hmm. uh, and I think is maybe top ten craft breweries. So yeah, obviously Miller Coors knows about Stone Brewing. And yeah. they knew exactly what they were doing. So they're taking a bit of a risk. They're, they've launched this huge, put a ton of money into this huge new campaign, new packaging, new everything. That goes along with it. That's, That's the other true. thing. They've changed the packaging so that the, the key is small and the big stone is all the way across the side of the can and stuff. So. Yeah, I think they're in trouble. Um, I, I think if it were reversed, everyone would say that the little guy would be in trouble. So it's yeah. really just a question of whether they have the legal and financial might to fight it as far as they want to. Yeah. So let's skip this last one and come back to it because it may develop and we'll tell more about it later. All right. All right. Yeah, that's a good 
there's a there's a fourth item on the list, but we're not going to tell you. <laughs> You're going to have to tune in next That's right. time. <laughs> Stay tuned. <laughs> All right. Uh, so let's turn to our main topic then, which is Michael Jackson, the great beer writer. Yeah. Uh, we should talk a little bit about who he is, since I do think uh, he died in tw- 2007, and maybe people are not even that familiar with him now. Yeah, and I'll, and as we've already mentioned, I'll be completely honest, I know almost nothing about him. I've come, I'm coming into this completely naive. Um, you've mentioned him countless times to me, so I'm aware of who he is and basically what he's done, but I don't really know much more than that. So Yeah. So why don't you give us his bio? Yeah, uh, I will give you his bio right after I tell this quick anecdote. Um, Last year at HomebrewCon, I think it was at HomebrewCon, it was someplace where Stan Hieronymus, the writer, and I were hanging out, and somebody came up to us and uh, didn't know anything about beer and asked, who's the most important beer writer in America? And we both said, Michael Jackson. (laughs) And this was something like last year. Right. Uh, And that is because uh, of his enormous impact on the way um, beer writing has has played out and the way we talk about beer. Yeah. So who is this guy? He he was born in 1942 in uh, Huddersfield, Mm -hmm. uh, which is actually kind of a giant town, according to Wikipedia. It's like the eighth largest town in england which i haven't even heard of it so they they, even have a they even have a team now in the english premier league when i googled it i saw that (laughs) Uh, that's in west yorkshire halfway between leeds and manchester uh and he's kind of i guess when you read personal accounts people describe him as being very very much a yorkshireman which Mm -hmm. i don't understand so well but um you know there you go that's what that is uh and he started out as a journalist um and in one of those classic stories, uh, before he was finished with high school, he was a cub reporter and I think starting to work when he was 16. And he was really a, a successful writer. Uh, he got started um, doing uh, uh, the cub reporting thing. And then he went on uh, to work. That was at the Huddersfield Daily Examiner. Mm-hmm. Uh, then he were, went to Edinburgh. Edinburgh, uh, and then fam- finally at uh, London, where he worked on Fleet Street. Mm-hmm. And this is all when he was still a young man. Uh, he was <clears throat> producing documentaries, including David Frost's famous uh, uh, talk show. Okay, you know yeah. Frost. Yep, Frost and Nixon. That the thing. Frost-Nixon debates. Yeah. I don't know that he produced that, but he was working on that show. Mm-hmm. Uh, he founded the industry magazine, uh, an industry magazine covering advertising, as well as KLM's. Magazine in flight magazine, in flight magazine, yeah. Wow. Uh, and this is all when he's quite young. Uh, and then in uh, the mid 1970s, he and uh, a couple of other people form a publishing house called Quarto. Okay, and uh, the first two books published by that publishing house were two books by Michael Jackson. And the first one was called The English Pub, and it was kind of this. And so Quarto, the, the idea behind Quarto was that it would be uh, coffee table books. Okay. Um, full color, glossy, which is something right. that uh, had not been, that was not a treatment that was given to beer. Right. Um, and, it, and it should be noted uh, that uh, there, were, there were other beer writers at the time. Uh, there's a guy named Frank Bailey uh, who wrote a book called The Beer Drinker's Companion in 72. Uh, and Richard Boston, who was a columnist for The Guardian. Mm-hmm. And he's kind of the, he was the more famous person by far in England. He was really associated with beer writing at the time. So when they founded this, this book, uh, this, this company, and decided to uh, give their beer, their first two beer books, this kind of glossy uh, look, it was really something that people hadn't done with, with beer before. Mm-hmm. Uh, his second book, so the first book, which I, 
I actually did not have either of these two books. Uh, and I, it used to be really hard to get them and I would look at them on Amazon and stuff and they'd be like $400 and I never bought one. Right. But just before this pod, uh, I went on Amazon and they're really cheap now. So I got uh, his second one, which was the, the book that made him and kind of made beer writing, which I'm going to hold up now so okay. you can see it. It's yes. called uh, The World Guide to Beer. The World Guide to Beer. So it is a coffee table book. Uh, Ta-da. <laughs> Very nice. <laughs> this is a great podcast commentary as I show it to Patrick. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So it's a coffee table-sized book. It's about an inch thick. Uh, it's got a big sort of beer label-themed uh, cover. And uh, inside, oh, yeah, so it's full color, lots of beer ad, you know, replications of beer ads. There's breweries and maps, and oh, you just oh, you happen to open up Scandinavia and the north. Yeah, and so it was, it was structured around um, kind of an atlas thing. Mm-hmm. So it goes uh, country to country to, uh, and talks about the beer in, in each one. Nice. Uh, and... Uh, his and so I think he was really influenced. I, I actually met him th- on three different occasions, and he talked uh, about Hugh Johnson, who was a famous English wine writer. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, the times that I saw him, and I know he talked about it in print quite a bit, he was heavily influenced by Johnson, and he brought the ethos of wine writing to beer. Right. And so I think one of the reasons this is is done by region is the same. I think that was a, one of those wine touches. You right. Know, you, you, when you write about wine, you do it by region and, and uh, you talk about Bordeaux and you talk about uh, what's another wine? Uh, <laughs> uh, Pinot. Pinot. Uh, there you go. That, isn't that a Bordeaux wine though? Uh, well, yeah. Uh, uh, what's what's a uh, what's a German wine? Uh, uh, Riesling. Riesling. There you go. Ooh, pulling it out. All right. Okay. Uh, and it was really in this in this book, World Guide to Beer, that he kind of changed everything. Um, he talked about, and it was, I have, I've had this book long enough to read through it and it's, it's quite a remarkable book. I thought it was going to be crude. People have described it as way out of date and, mm-hmm. and kind of, um, you know, sort of embarrassing, you know, in, in, in how old it is now, <laughs> right. but that's not really the case at all. He was only 35 when he wrote it. It's mm-hmm. incredibly well researched. Yeah. Uh, and he had gone around to the different countries and done a bunch of research and written about them. The, the first chapter is on Czechoslovakia, so there's these wonderful points of, of change. Like it's this right. this little museum piece now because yeah. obviously Czechoslovakia doesn't exist. But um, you know, he talks about he he he, he toured uh, Pilsner or Quell and went into the basement and talked all about that. He toured Budvar and. Um, talks all about that and it, he just really treats it as a serious subject in a way that uh people kind of wrote about beer as kind of a lark like we're going down to the pub we're drinking beer it's either good or it's bad yeah and, uh he took it very seriously yeah I, I was gonna say um uh one of the things that i imagine it's a change is sort of how you take the beer itself more seriously and not just the company and the branding and sort of what you find uh, i also wonder during that time how much beer got around like, yeah, this is, I think, the the really fascinating thing is uh, even, you know, even in, in countries we consider really sophisticated beer countries, um, they knew their local beer, but they didn't know what was happening, the one, you know, one country over. Right. And so this this right. was the first time somebody had collected together all the, you know, information about all the, the European beer styles um, The you know, the, for example, the Beer Drinker's Companion, which uh, Frank Bailey wrote in 1972 was only about UK beer. And right. I think that was kind of typical. It was a guide for uh, Brits to British beer. Right. 
this was really different. This yeah. was, uh, if you wanted to learn about some weird beer you, you can't buy at the store and, you know, have never even heard of, this was the place to go. Uh, I'm going to just mention the rest of the rest of his sort of bibliography. Uh, and then we can talk a little bit about how he did um, something really profound that is a giant legacy that we still have, which is that style thing. Right. <clears throat> so after he did a world guide to beer, uh, he published the pocket guide to beer, which was this little kind of long skinny book mm-hmm. um, that you could take with you. <laughs> yeah. It would actually fit in your back pocket right. in 1982, way before the internet. I think right? your breast pocket really. Come on. Oh, it's true. Please. It would have been your breast pocket. Yeah. I am as an, as an American was thinking about the back pocket yeah. Yeah, inside, inside your blazer, inside yeah. your blazer, of course. <laughs> Um, he published, I think, preferably tweed, by the way, (laughs) (laughs) in his case, probably almost certainly. Yeah. Uh, he published the great beers of Belgium in 1991. And that is probably the work that most people know Mm -hmm. about him. Uh, he was a a giant champion of Belgian beers and, uh, that was a, a really nice piece of writing and, uh, something people still refer to now. Mm. And then the beer companion he published in 1993. And this was a little bit like an early, uh, example of the kind of book that I wrote with the beer Bible. It was style-based and very deeply researched and um, just it's very much like a, an intro to beer uh, by style. Um, and it, it was also a big coffee table book and it was really pretty. And, um, my uh, copy is signed by Michael Jackson. Nice. Yeah. During during this time, sort of like the 80s and nine, early 90s that he's writing, is is that is all of the beer writing he's doing for books, or is he also writing for magazines, newspapers? He was writing a lot for magazines and newspapers. Okay, and he was really into whiskey, uh, mm-hmm. Scott Scottish whiskey, and wrote a lot about that. And we're not going to talk about that at all. Okay, except I will. <laughs> yeah, we. The we, one thing I'll we make, had a misadventure into wine already. Let's not. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. The one the one fascinating uh, bit of my connection to Michael Jackson is he was when he was in Portland once he gave a whiskey uh, tasting. Ah, and cool. this. yeah, it was really cool. So I, that was my real first introduction to, uh, scotch whiskey and it was, you know, very erudite and very cool. And, uh, I now still have a, a big love and it ended with Lagavulin, which was a beer that he, uh, a scotch he really liked mm. and that, and you know, he said, it's pronounced Isla. It's an Isla malt. And I fell in love with Isla malts. <laughs> yeah. Nice. Isla so. malts are good. All right. So let's talk a little bit about style. Uh, did you want, were you going to say something? I've been just that I like Island Malt <laughs> as well. <laughs> I've been blathering on. So uh, uh, if you have observations, well, I, I can, I can be your foil. So as I understand, Jeff, <laughs> yes. you really helped develop the idea of style when describing beer. <laughs> Please <laughs> expound. <laughs> See, now if we could, if we edited this thing at all, we would, we would interrupt and go back and do that. But no, we, we give you the, we like to give you all the, all the, all the, you see under the hood here. Yeah, I was you see the sausage getting was, made. Exactly, I was going to make a sausage reference. <laughs> <laughs> All the naughty bits that go into the sausage. Yeah, uh, the the cool thing um, that Michael did was he traveled the world, which is just on its own kind of unusual, and mm-hmm. looked at what other people were making in other countries. And in countries like uh, Germany, that was fine because mm-hmm. uh, Germany has a really strong sense of style. Mm-hmm. All the all the styles that we know about German beer come from Germany. They're very well defined, and the Germans can speak about that. You know, a Doppelbach is a Doppelbach. It's not unclear. But in other countries, that was not the case. They made beers that didn't necessarily have categories, uh, even among the 
you know, the, the local people, that was the case uh, in, for certainly in Belgium. It wasn't super evident in the Czech Republic mm-hmm. uh, how the, how you categorize the different beers. And even in, uh, in Britain, it wasn't so clear. You know, you had right. you had these beers that, uh, you know, like if you had a, a light mild, it's 3.5%, um, not super strong hop character. And then you have might have a, a, a standard bitter, 3.5%, maybe slightly stronger right. uh, malt, uh, hop character, but are these different beer styles? It wasn't. I don't think it was super clear at at the time. And so he started thinking about, I got to figure out how to write about these beers and make them sensible to other people right. who, who have never seen or heard of them. Right. Um, and he originally was talking about, uh, in, in, uh, in his writing, he was originally talking about things like types and varieties, kinds and species. These were different words he used. Yeah. But then in the World Guide to Beer, uh, he wrote, this kind of famous passage, which uh, beer writers refer back to, which I'll read now. Uh, he wrote that there were certain, and now I'm quoting, classical examples within each group, and some of them have given rise to uh, generally accepted styles. If a brewer specifically has the intention of reproducing a classical beer, then he is working within a style. If his beer is, if his beer merely bears a general similarity to others, then it may be regarded as being of their type. Okay. So he had, he wasn't it. It's not exactly the way we use style now, right. but he introduced this idea of what a what a beer style would be, mm-hmm. and uh, and it was the first time anybody had had talked about that. And you can go back hundreds of years, and people will talk about different kinds of beers. Like they make this beer in um, you know a town, and it's this is the description of it without giving it. Uh, uh, a name or talking about its historical context with other right beers that were also made in the same place. Right. Jackson was the first one to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so then the, the really interesting thing is, um, and of course this comes back to Portland because all beer styles, all beer discussion comes back to Portland. <laughs> of course. <laughs> uh, the really, I think the thing that really made um, the, the beer style thing stick was, and this is a, by the way, uh, a, a theory that came up came from Martin Cornell, the English beer historian. Uh, I didn't. This is not my own thing. Just to point that out. <laughs> okay. Was our own Fred Eckhart uh, wrote a book in 1989 called "The Elements of Beer Style," and it was incredibly important in the United States in developing that that sense of because in the United States we didn't know anything about beer. We were incredibly ignorant, right. and so we didn't. You know, people had traveled overseas. They might have been to Dublin and had a stout, um, or they would have had that same stout in England too. But, um, mm-hmm. you know, they might have been to Dusseldorf and had an alt beer or whatever, but it was really right. haphazard and they didn't understand style. Right. So Eckhart extended on what uh, Jackson was doing and he wrote this book. And that was the thing that Americans really capitalized on. And so much of what came after that with the BJCP guidelines and the, you know, all these different guidelines come from this nomenclature of style, this concept of style and organizing beers in different categories right. based on their history and production and all, all these kinds of uh, connective tissue. And that all came from Jackson, which is super cool. Right. So <clears throat> prior to that, you might like talk about the beer, that, the kind of beer that they might make in Cologne, Germany or something, or the kind of beer that he found in, I don't know, you show me Scandinavia. So they, right. might, <laughs> might, they might have in Stockholm. And he started making the connections between the types of the types of beers they were and the styles that they that they represented. Um, talk to me a little bit more about this difference between style and type. 
Yeah, he at this point when he was writing about it, he was really thinking, and I, I think he was right. And I think in the way that we, I think we kind of over uh, over interpreted the way to think about beer through mm-hmm. this this lens. I think his idea was really that there are certain benchmark beers in okay. the world, and these benchmark beers can be considered really important because they influence all these other beers right uh really represent a kind of strain of classic brewing but they're not necessarily uh representative of all those different beers right and you don't you don't have to try to shoehorn everything into there but when you're looking for a classic example of a doppelbach or uh you know uh ordinary bitter these are the kind of beers you're going to look for. Right. So that's what I was going to get at. Or the question I had for you is, so there's certain beers out there who might be sort of like the ur beer of, of a certain style. Like this is it, that this is what has established the style or maybe a couple of beers. Yeah. And then there's lots of other beers that are like them, which in that old nomenclature, I guess he used to call types. Right. Uh, that are similar and brewed in a similar way, but not, not exactly that, that classic uh, or that standard. Yeah. And I think that's actually the way we should think about beer. Mm-hmm. It makes a lot more sense to me than trying to, you know, breweries are often trying to individualize their beers and make them slightly different. And they can be considered, you know, in general, maybe in a kind of category. But the whole thing about IPAs illustrates how dangerous this is. Yeah. How many do we have? Is it one style or is it, you know, 13 styles? Okay. So and, that's, so that actually, I was going to save this because I don't want to get too, well, well, we'll loop back to to Michael Jackson himself, but let's talk about style for a second in, in a modern usage because beers are, I mean, you can argue that we're all just sort of making beers that have been made before, I suppose, but in new ways and different ways. And so how useful is style still? We've had this discussion about what you, what do you call all these different IPAs, which is a really good place to start. Uh, is it, is it still useful to discuss beer in terms of style? Yeah, I think it is still useful to discuss. Well, it's it's useful to discuss beer style. I, I yeah. Actually, I that was a badly I was a badly posed question. So because uh, that's sort of I would agree. Uh, I guess what I'm trying to say is, uh, in this era of very rapidly evolving tastes and styles and beer and innovation, can can this idea of style keep up? Like, is this something that's going still still useful in the modern era? that makes sense yeah i think i don't have a good answer to that i'm gonna throw it back to you in a minute uh because i'm interested in i think we can all reflect on that uh my sense is styles are better for uh describing beers that are pretty well established Mm -hmm. you know when you talk about an american pale ale that's a thing that has has come into being and we understand pretty well we kind of i think if you ask uh, a bunch of different people who know something about beer what an american I, uh, pale ale is they'll give you a good answer but then there are these other categories of of evolution and uh, ipa is a perfect example yeah. it's been a beer in evolution for 20 25 years yeah and it you know we don't know how to talk about that beer so I, yeah i'm not sure i'm not sure what are your what are your thoughts well my thoughts are, are the following that it's it's particularly for something like beer where you don't know what it is until you actually taste it and then you can make your own judgment but if you're trying to describe a beer to somebody or you're selling a beer that's in a package and they won't know if they like it, then we need to have a common language or at least common reference points. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that style is incredibly, you know, whether, whatever, however you call it, but, but having some common language is, is crucial. Right. So I'll start with that and say, so I think style is that, is that, that the most fundamental 
step towards a common language. And then when you have these sort of uh, mutations that are always happening, like is New England IPA a style? And if so, can we define it? And um, to me, I always get a little bit more agnostic about that because I care a little bit less about whether we can really pinpoint the style and describe what are the crucial elements and what aren't. And you're only in this style if you just... It's more just a common language. If I say, look, this is my New England style IPA, yeah. then you kind of understand what you're getting. Right. So in a sense, uh, um, that's how I, I, the utility of, of being able to, to call beers certain styles is exactly that, is that we can all understand. And that's, then that's tricky, right? Because you do need to have, you know, if I give you something that looks like a Hellas and I say, this is my new style IPA, you're <laughs> right. going to say, wait a minute. Uh, so we do have to have the sort of common characteristics. You can come up with, uh, um, with style based on, based on that. I don't know. I'm sort of talking in circles now, but, but that's basically what, how I think about it is that, is that common language, particularly for goods that we don't, um, that we have to taste to, to, uh, to know them. Uh, it's good to have a common language so that if I walk into a bar and, and I'm looking for something like a New England IPA, I'm not ordering a Pilsner. Right. Yeah. It's an interesting thing. When you ask that question, it occurs to me, well, one thing that occurs to me is it depends on, uh, why we're asking the question so in the marketplace you want clarity you mm -hmm. want to be able you exactly what you're describing yeah for customers you want to be able to communicate what your what is in the bottle or what's going to be in the glass when it comes across the bar then there's this whole question of um you know what what is scholars which is an entirely different kind of level mm -hmm. if you're a beer scholar yeah. such things could be said to be existing uh you know how would they classify them in a way you know that's a whole different debate and I tend to, I tend, I guess I tend to side with you on this. I, I, I'm not actually that uh, interested in the scholarly debate. I'm much more interested in the market debate and clarity. And, and kind of in one way, the scholarly debate to me is sort of a historical debate. Like in, in 30 years, scholars right. can decide whether there was actually a style called New England IPA and whether, you know, <laughs> it's going to depend on how long it sticks. And, you know, uh, and then, you know, and then it's important to sort of, I guess, to trace the DNA of beer and to think about the history of beer and the kind of stuff that you talk about, these old beers that used to exist and now we're trying to recreate. So those kinds of, then it's very useful to be very precise about style, I think. Um, so yeah, I, I agree. It's sort of two different things. Yeah, you're you're thinking the same thing I'm thinking, which is I'm thirsty. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> let, let's crack that the the bottle. Yeah, and I'll introduce this as you're cracking it. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things that Jackson did, and and one of the reasons what he did was so valuable was his his kind of um, main passion in the beer world was the, were the beers of Belgium. He really loved Belgian beers. Yeah. And in Belgium, breweries don't think about style at all. They resist it. Every Belgian brewer I ever talked to, if you say, oh, you make this kind of beer, they say, nope, I make, I make then, my beer. I make my <laughs> beer. And it, you better not try to categorize right. it. But that wasn't, but, but Jackson's goal was to go back to an English audience and, and also to a North American audience and try to explain, you know, you've got, uh, there were probably 150 breweries there and they were all making these different kinds of beers. Mm -hmm. How, how does that make sense? Right. How, how do we talk about that? Uh, and, it, and so he came up with the nomenclature that we still use. Most of the Belgian styles come straight from Jackson, right. the way he, he categorized them. And, uh, and as I understand, and correct me if I'm wrong, but, I, but as I understand, there was almost, you could not find these beers unless you went uh, to Belgium. That's right. That's and, totally right. And so they were largely unknown to the world. Uh, and he discovered them and delighted in them, right? Yeah, yeah. 
And one of the, I happen to have this in the fridge. It was my Christmas beer. Sal there always, we go. always uh, gives me one of these in my stocking. Uh, is <laughs> is uh, Orval, which is a Trappist beer. We may even have had it on this pod before. I do believe we've we've had it on the pod before, but that should not stop us from having it again. And you, by, by the way, have a beautiful Orval chalice. To... Yeah. It's a beer I have some affection for, let's say. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, lovely. And... It, it, he was he was one of the one one of the things that he was really good about. We'll talk a little bit more about his legacy, but um, he understood how to tell a good story, and he understood what was interesting and and rare. And he didn't write really about mass market beers so much. He wrote wrote much more about uh, these little faraway breweries, and he understood for sure that uh, monks making beer was cool. And then he tasted this weird beer that they were making in in. Uh, the southern part of Belgium at the Orval Brewery uh, Monastery, and he really, he really loved this. I think this was one of those benchmark beers that he talked about a lot. Uh, and I think if he were sitting here right today, that beer is still tastes sub- substantially the same, and we could have a nice discussion about the legacy of this beer with with Jackson. So this is one of his classic beers that goes back uh, forty years to uh, when he first wrote the World Guide to Beer. I assume this is one of the greatest of the great beers of Belgium in his book. I, yeah, <laughs> I, it's been a while since I've I've read it thoroughly, so I can't say, but I'm sure that's true. And yeah, I mean, you have to imagine like now this beer, this beer is still pretty cutting edge. Still, most breweries will not make a beer like this. Yeah, but you can imagine if all you ever had was Budweiser and somebody were to bring this to your attention, it would be earth shattering. You yeah. would not know what to do with it. You wouldn't. You just wouldn't believe that it could be a beer could be like this. Yeah, it's uh, it's pretty phenomenal. Yeah, so this is uh, Sally gave it to me for Christmas, and we're now into late February. February, and I don't know how long it took for Sally. You know, it might it might have been sitting on a shelf for a while before Sally got it. So it's a little bit aged. This beer will age it, for for years. I was gonna say it's it's okay because the best before date is, uh, well, I don't know. Actually, this is probably in European. It's either January January third or it's uh, March first. I think it's probably March 1st, but either way, it's 2022. So you're okay. <laughs> there you go. You got four more years. <laughs> yeah. So this is, uh, this is I would call, adolescent Orval. Mm-hmm. It's a beer that changes. It's made with, uh, it's a hoppy kind of English-style beer that is rustic, and then at the end, they throw in, uh, a, 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 it's dry hopped. Did I just say that? Uh, well, now you did. Okay, it's dry hopped, <laughs> um, and then it, and then when it goes into the conditioning tanks, they throw in Brettanomyces, uh, and so when you buy this fresh, it has a very uh, aromatic, hoppy bouquet, right? And that fades away as the uh, Brett comes on, and you can really tell the age of Orval by how bready it is, how funky it is. Yeah, so, Fre- a really fresh Orval will not have very much funk at all. Yeah, and this has only a little. Yeah, only a little. So mm. I would say adolescent. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Ah, that's good. Not a baby, but not very, not very far down the road. And um, it, the aromatic, the hop aromatics are, are subdued already, so it's not super fresh as far as that goes. Right. Uh, so when he wrote, I'm looking back on the notes here. Best beers of uh, the great beers of Belgium was in 1991. Yeah, and at that time was. Uh, as we just established, there wasn't a whole lot of exporting of Belgian beers. Yeah. And so how fundamental was he in popularizing Belgian beers? Because 
they became like super popular in the United States. He was he was the whole ball game, um, and we can talk a little bit about his importance uh, as we're going along. Do do Belgian brewers know this? Think about this? Appreciate this? Oh, absolutely. Okay, you will still find uh, to this day quotes about Jackson talking about their beer in their promotional material. Wow. Yeah, he was he was a giant fanatic for. Uh, a few different kinds of Belgian beers. He was he was really into the Trappists. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was re- he was a, a a big fan of. He actually divided them into two styles, and even in Belgium, they re- regard them as one style now, and that is the uh, the red brown beers of Flanders. So mm-hmm. he divided them between the. Uh, East Flanders and West Flanders style, uh, Rodenbach standing in as the exemplar of the West Flanders, red, he uh-huh. called them red, and then the Fliefmans as the brown. Okay. <laughs> I think they're so close that you should not really divide them, but um, he was a giant fan of those. He called them the Burgundies of Belgium, which is something that people still talk about. I, I, I recognize that quote, did not realize it was his. Yeah. Uh, he was into lambics. He mm-hmm. loved lambics. And Cezanne. And and it is almost a sure bet that if Michael Jackson hadn't started writing about beer, Cezanne would not exist. The style of Cezanne would not exist. Um, because it would have gone out of... There were only two being made at the time. Uh-huh. Um, what, say, uh, DuPont was one, and I think right. Silly was the other. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he had discovered DuPont and, and really loved the, the brewery and the beer. And he talked to... Uh, one of the ways that he saved Cezanne DuPont, that, that style, the Cezanne they were making, uh, was by getting Don Feinberg of Van Bergen de Wolf to import it to the United States. Uh-huh. And uh, I have this wonderful... So really, he really has like an absolute... I mean, it's not just through the soft effect of his writing, but he was actually instrumental in, in making a market for these things. He wanted to save beers. He, he, was, mm-hmm. he was going particularly around Belgium and looking at some of these beers and seeing, you know, this tiny... and. DuPont is a tiny beer, right. a tiny brewery. Uh, this little farmhouse brewery that made this extraordinary beer, that, and he had read about Saison's, and he knew that they were dying off. There was only two extant examples left, and he was blown away by it. So he was very much an advocate trying to get it saved. Wow. There's, I got this off the, uh, the uh, Van Berg and DeWolf website. So they were the, 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 the importer of Saison uh, DuPont at mm-hmm. the time. And they tell this story. I think this comes from... Uh, uh, via uh, a, a thing with, with uh, Don, Don Feinberg. So it's a quote. He, speaking of Jackson, uh, told me that it's a great brewery and a great beer, Feinberg recalled. Uh, he actually didn't play it up at all how endangered it was. When I did get to the brewery, they told me that they wanted, uh, what they wanted me to import was Moinette. So that's the most popular beer they make in Belgium. In Belgium, right. Yeah. <clears throat> Uh, I told them that that's a great beer, but the beer that I am actually thinking, uh, I'm, at, I'm really interested in is Saison DuPont. They proceeded to tell me that they were actually thinking of discontinuing Saison DuPont, <laughs> oh my which at that point was down to 2% of their sales. Oh my Lord. So Saison's, uh, and it's funny when, when you read the, uh, great beers of Belgium, the category on Saison, he's, he, even as late as, as this book, and I have the third edition, which came from 1998, mm-hmm. he describes it as a, a really obscure style that doesn't have any following, and people, even in Belgium, don't know what it is. Wow. So you can buy, if you go walk into a pub right now, anywhere in America, you're almost certainly going to see a Saison on tap. Right. And you would not if if Jackson hadn't loved Saison DuPont. And if you go to any good beer store in the U.S., you'll find Saison DuPont itself. That's right. Yeah, that's which right. Which is 
uh, thought of, at least by me, as one of the best beers in the world. It's amazing. Yeah, I think you share that with with uh, Jackson. Mm. And the beers that he championed, I mean, I don't think this is incidental at all. It was really fascinating to go to the, uh, uh, what's what's his first book called? The uh, World Guide to Beer. World Guide to Beer. And see the beers that he's championing, championing there. Uh-huh. Those are the beers that we consider the world classics, and most of them are still in business. Yeah. And I don't think that's incidental. I think if he had championed different beers, maybe, you know, uh, Silly, which is still being made, probably because of this, you know, Saison DuPont. Um, if he'd championed that beer, it might have become the classic Saison right. uh, that we consider. Huh. Uh, you know, Rodenbach, I don't know that Rodenbach survives without Jackson. No. So... He was an important figure that way, uh, and lovers of Saison really <laughs> tip their hat to him. You may or may not have much to say about this, but I'll ask anyway, which is, uh, you know, England particularly, uh, or the UK in general, uh, particularly at the time, is very uh, classist society, and beer is a very working class drink. Yeah. Uh, and so it's not common that you would find people, you know, waxing poetic about beer. And so how much do you think that he did to change the image of beer as a drink, uh, particularly in the UK? But Yeah. Uh, he, he really recognized it as a working-class beer. I flipped open that English pub thing, and he talks about how uh, he, it's, a, it's a love letter to the English pub, mm-hmm. and he acknowledges that it's a working-class place, and it's a place that people don't pay a lot of attention to or uh, take, you know, think of as a, an important national institution. Right. Uh, and he, he writes beautifully about it, but I think, yeah, I think that's, that's one of the most important legacies of Jackson. Um, he, he, he wanted people to take it seriously and he wrote about it really beautifully. So two things on the way Jackson wrote, mm-hmm. uh, he was a really beautiful writer. Uh, and I'm going to read a, a little passage so people can get a flavor Good. in a minute, but he, um, he was a reporter. So he had this, he had this kind of, um, he, tre- he really treated his readers seriously. Right. He would write about uh, the way a beer was made. He would talk about the production methods. And he would go into the brewery. He really understood beer well. He probably didn't at the very start, but by the time uh, his later books were coming out, he really understood. I mean, he could have been a brewer himself. And by really communicating that stuff rather than just talking about it in the way that they talk about wine, I think, mm-hmm. um, it really helped people become connected to the to the beer uh, and f- feel like it was a tangible, accessible thing. Uh, so I think those are really important pieces of Jackson. And I'll maybe I'll read a little bit here. Uh, yeah, before you do, I just want to okay. ask one follow up question, which is yeah, uh, how so uh, the traditional pub, pub culture in England is still under threat, but it's has gone through a lot of um, consolidation or a lot of pub closings. <clears throat> but still you have these legacy brewers that exist, like Fuller's, for example. Do you think, uh, um, did he, uh, I don't want to say champion, but was he as sort of, um, uh, uh, I don't know, fond or, or well, I guess I'll say champion. Did he champion those brewers as as, as much as like uh, those in Belgium? He did. He no, l- thank you. Yeah. <laughs> You're nodding. I'm trying to get to the end of my sentence. <laughs> he totally loved... Uh, Little little traditional breweries. He loved tradition. Mm-hmm. And wherever he found people making traditional beer, he loved it and he wanted to tell that story. And this this six-episode uh, 
piece that he did for Channel 4 and, and the Beer Hunter that he did for TV. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was only six episodes, and I think everybody really laments that it was not much longer than that. Uh, you can find these on YouTube, and I really encourage people to, to look them up. Michael Jackson, Beer Hunter, you'll find, you'll mm-hmm. find full uh, recordings. And, and they were each a different country. So he did one on Belgium. He did one on Czech Republic, Czech, oh, nice. Czechoslovakia. And he did one on England. And the one on England, actually, I was watching it to prepare for this. And it was so inspiring that I uh, did this long post about it. Um, there's He goes to Batemans, which is in Lincolnshire, mm-hmm. on uh, coastal county. And they're, uh, they had just survived a not really a takeover bid, but part of the family wanted out and they were going to sell and then it would have been a takeover bid. And in, in like an early crowdsourcing thing, local punters <laughs> just started ponying up money to buy those, to buy those family members out. Nice. And Bateman still exists. And the cool thing is he, he goes into the brewery. So you see him going to the brewery and the brewer, as they're walking past the mash tun, he says, Oh, that's, that's over a hundred years old. Uh, and as he walks a little bit further, he says, it's made out of cast iron. <laughs> 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 and they keep going around and you just see all these artifacts of, uh, you know, uh, classic cask production. It's a, they have this weird Jules Verne shaped kettle, uh, which is, they joke about whether it's uh, Jacques Cousteau or Jules Verne. And um, they show the hot back and they're making beer using the hot back. Like we use modern whirlpools. Right. He adds hops then. It's like, Oh, this is interesting. You can see some of the threads there. Yeah. Uh, then he goes to the fermentation and they've got the classic, which you'll, you'll remember from our trip, uh, the classic square open fermenters. Yeah. So, and then they go down to the, the cask, you know, the casking cellar where the guy, the cellarman is casking ales down there. And, nice. um, the, everything about it just strikes you as totally traditional. And it was really familiar to Jackson, uh, you know, when he was talking about it. But I think to the rest of the world, it would have looked like a profoundly bizarre place. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, he did. He loved those. And he 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 was a big fan of Bateman's. And, and it's a really charming episode. Yeah. So part of turning beer into something to take seriously, uh, I suppose, is being able to write about it eloquently. So why don't you read us his uh, the passage that you were... You so know. I... I went to uh, Great Beers of Belgium, and uh, I'm going to read you just his little intro about uh, Blaugies, which I don't think had opened up uh, very much before he he started this. And I remember the, the, the kind of the reason I want to uh, uh, mention it is because I remember when I read it, it really leapt out at me, and I wanted I I spent a long time trying to track this beer down just because of how much I liked it. So here we go. Uh, south of, and I don't know how to, I'm really, I've always established I'm really bad about my English, or about French pronunciation, so apologies. Both, yeah. South of Mons, M-O-N-S. Mont. 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 Uh, the town of Dour, D-O-U-R. Dour. Dour. Uh, south of Mont, in the town of Dour, the village of Blaugis itself, recurrent signs by the road offer butter and honey and point to the local brewery, which is almost at the French frontier. Finally, a wooden sign somehow affixed to a privet hedge next to a handsome garden gate and a greeting from a St. Bernard dog reveal the orchard, cottage, and garage brewery of Pierre-Alex Collier and his wife, Marie-Noël Portois. He teaches physiotherapy, she taught general science, and they became interested in brewing after stumbling upon a recipe in a 1926 home management encyclopedia. The recipe didn't work, recalls Marie-Noël, who does the brewing. So in this, I don't know, uh, 150 words, he yeah. paints this extraordinary picture, yes. tells the 
tells you quite a bit about this couple through through the selection of this anecdote. Tells you who the brewer is, just a lot about what's going on, and also makes you really engaged. And yeah. this is what he was so good at. So it's interesting because this is to me this is sort of like the genesis of of craft too, because it's understanding where your beer comes from. It's understanding it as a as a artisanal product made by individuals who have their own interesting stories and uh and to me that's 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 a lot of what craft represents it's it's thinking of beer not as an industrial product but as an artisanal product as the product of somebody's imagination and 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 toil and uh and and special talent in crafting beer and you see it all right there in that one passage yeah and i think uh everyone in the old days talked about how they read Jackson. So if you're a small American, if you're an American who wants to start a small brewery, and it seems overwhelming because the only examples you have are these large industrial breweries around you, and then you read Jackson and you read stories like this, you think, oh, it's possible for individuals to do this. And in fact, it sounds incredibly romantic and cool. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, his his uh, his importance in helping inspire a generation of young uh, brewers in America can be overstated. It's yeah. really important. And yeah. and I think I've talked to English brewers. Uh, English writers, and they often observe that they think he was Jackson was more important in the United States than he was in, in the UK. Oh, really? Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, it seems like he's sort of uh, um, uh, giving beer as much love and attention as wine. Yeah. Right? And thinking about it in a, in a similar way. Yeah. He thought it was worthy of serious attention and, and good writing. Yeah. And I think everyone else was kind of embarrassed by it before that and wrote about it as sort of a frolic, you know, well, a exactly, lesser yeah. thing. Yeah, exactly. It's hard to be taken seriously uh, uh, writing about beer, I suppose, particularly if you're not a good writer. So having a, having a very erudite and talented person and very curious, obviously, uh, come and write about beer probably changed perception a lot. Uh, in my personal sort of narrative, which I have no idea whether it's true, but this is how I think about <laughs> craft beer in the U.S. I think of uh, um, two sort of big big influences. One, Michael Jackson, that was solely from you and you telling me about uh, him and his influence. And the other is Charlie Papazian, mm-hmm. uh, who uh, wrote the Home Brewers Companion and seemed to me to really start sort of the homebrew movement that, uh, that for many people morphed into actual uh, craft beer business. Yeah, that's also a critically important book in, in the history of the American craft brewing revolution. Yeah, so there was, I think it, there was nothing else. It was the only way you could figure out how to make beer. And so so one, the Jackson the Jackson thread is sort of taking beer seriously and introducing you to the different styles and the, and the craft of making it. And the other one is how to do it and how you can yourself make good beer and what are the ingredients and how you mix them together and... Yeah. Uh, so it's fascinating. I mean, and, 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 and why I say this, because they were kind of contemporary. I'm not sure when the Homebrewers Companion was first published, but what, 1980, maybe? I believe it was called The Complete Guide to Homebrewing. Oh, I'm sorry. Whatever. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever. Just, I was going to let you get by with one of them, but I'm going to, I better Thank correct you. the Thank you one. very much. I, pre- <laughs> I do appreciate that. I have an old mind and it doesn't hold much anymore. Yeah, I think it was, it was late 70s or early 80s sometime. Yeah. And Probably the readers are slapping their heads. How do you not know that? But sometimes we do know that. Yeah. It's just that we don't. We, it's just that we forgot. No, no, no. it's our brains. <laughs> our brains become highly efficient, and we store away knowledge, not not needing. It's like the difference between RAM and you know hard drive. It's in the hard drive somewhere. It's in the hard drive. Yeah, it's not in the RAM. We'll, we'll always claim it's in the hard. drive. It's not in the RAM. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay. Um, 
So, should we, uh, we the, the next phase of our beer tasting was going to go entirely modern and think about what Michael Jackson would think of, uh, how he would think of, uh, oh God, I'm torturing this, uh, a modern IPA. Right. So, he, let's, let's let the audio blow here, Frank. <laughs> Can you hear that? I can hear that. Uh, that is the lovely sound of the effervescence of a... Uh, Sierra Nevada, hazy little thing, IPA. Hazy little thing. So this is, this is uh, a, a brand new beer. I think little reviewed so far. I haven't seen a lot of chatter about it, Ooh. so uh, that's kind of cool. Um, I mean, Jackson started writing in the 70s, and he died in 2007. Right. By 2007, the United States had... had a really evolved craft beer scene right. and uh you know american ipas were a big deal and and he'd seen this massive evolution and one of the nice things about him he was a reporter you know he just continued to report he reported yeah. through the end of his days and he was always interested he was really curious and so he would have continued to report and find all this stuff interesting i mm -hmm. think and it would be you know really fascinating to see what he thought about this it was it was nice he was not a man who held prejudices he did not think you got to make a beer like this like the old in the old days he was really curious i was about to say it uh, obviously he had his personal preferences but um uh were there any beers that he how do i say this any beer styles he didn't particularly like boy i don't i don't know of any i right. think i think he was less in love with German beer styles just in general. Just I make that observation just because he didn't seem to find the same kind of romance in them that he found in some of the, like the writing doesn't have quite the romance. Yeah. Um, but, but still, if the German all, beards are very German, they're very precise. They're very clean. They're very sharp. I don't know. Yeah. He loved lambics. Exactly. So, you know? <laughs> so it's very different from a lambic or from even Cezanne de Pont. Yeah. Ooh, that's really nice. Yeah, so... And that's old, you told me. Yeah, I'm running this experiment. I bought a six-pack of this in uh, uh, late December, and it was already, I think it was 1205. 1205, yeah, so package, yeah. It was already cut three weeks old, and I've just been drinking, because one of the big things about these, this style, uh, it's a New England IPA, is how well have these big breweries who are doing national releases, uh, have they figured out a way to make them last? for Shelf-stable. Yeah, yeah shelf-stable. So I've been running this experiment... Well, cans help, I think, a lot with that. Yeah, and this was so in a too. can. So, what are your impressions? Uh, I won't tell you anything uh, <laughs> about how it's aged. Or okay, anything. all right. So, let me. It still has a. It's a little bit tired on the nose. Uh huh. Like it's. Um, you can. You still get the the uh, the aroma compounds, but they're starting to to break down a bit, and they're a little bit muddy. That's so. That's one. But it's nice. Um, but the flavor on the tongue is still pretty well preserved. Hmm. I can't say that not knowing the early one, but it's still pretty bright on the tongue. Mm -hmm. You get a lot of citrus. Um, it's it's typical New England in that uh, it's um, relatively uh, sweet with a little bit of uh, bitter back, um, but not not bracing. Mm -hmm. uh, it's got a very light body base. Um, it's a bit hazy, as we talked about. Not not. Not milky though, not milkshaky, but still hazy. Yeah, uh, it was hazier when it, you know, mm -hmm. three months ago it was hazier. So there's still a lot of stuff. Uh, but they've done a good job of preserving a lot of that haze. And it has that, yeah, it has that. What, one of the things I think people love about New England IPAs is they just have that real Moorish quality that gives you a little bit of sweet, but not too much that gets cloying. So you just keep. Mm, it's very easy drinking. 
Yeah. I think it's a really, uh, even old, it's a pretty, pretty darn good representative of the style. Yeah. It, I've been really impressed with how well it's aging mm-hmm. and, uh, I'm glad I'm, I, you know, we've talked about how much we like this brewery and yeah. I want them to succeed. Uh, it was it was a, it was kind of a different beer when it started out though it has changed a bit it was much softer and less bitter oh okay so the bitterness is is coming out and it's but it's coming I out kind of like nice, the way it is now yeah I, <laughs> I, I, I I like that part of it I found it a little too soft when okay. it was fresh yep. it, it just was too New Englandy for me I like a little bit more bitterness yeah and now it's got some of those hops have kind of turned into um, citrusy is exactly right and there's almost an ascorbic acid citrusy mm-hmm. that it, they have now. Um, yeah, I think it's a nice beer. I think they've done a good job. I have no idea if it'll sell or if anybody will like it. But um, and you know, for the people who like the extreme examples of the, you know, distillate of fruit juice, uh, it probably will not satisfy them. It it doesn't have the amazing, amazing intensity that that a, that's right. Know, the most the most extreme examples. Yeah, have. and I don't know that those are ever possible to have ninety days of shelf stable. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> um, my impression, based on what you've told me, is that Michael Jackson was much more of a journalist than a critic. So he yeah, was, he wasn't really a critic. He didn't he didn't review beers except for in the uh, uh, the Pocket Guide, and those were one sentence jobs. And he didn't really harsh on beers too much at all. Right, it wasn't good or bad, just this or that. There are a couple of criticisms of Jackson uh, we should mention, just okay. because in the spirit of full disclosure, he did. Uh, he did do consulting, which he was not very transparent about. Mm. And uh, he even worked with breweries uh, who wanted to use his words to promote his beer. Okay. Uh, this was really common in wine writing and, and whiskey writing at the time, and I think still is. Mm-hmm. And so he didn't mention it, but he was a little bit cagey about it, and he's come in for some criticism for that. Yeah. Full disclosure. He definitely, um, to your point, was not a guy who was interested in uh, – uh, criticism per se he didn't want he 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 lived at a time in a place where he saw all these styles of beer that were endangered right and he really wanted them to survive yeah so he was a big cheerleader and that's one of his unfortunate legacies is that now so much of wine so much of beer writing is cheerleading cheerleading yeah and now these breweries are going to survive these styles are going to survive saison is not going to go away you can trash a brewery for making a crappy saison and you know the style will not be lost so i i do think we need to uh Give him a pass on that, and maybe well, and think about the context of the time where where big brewing almost destroyed all of, of sort of traditional and craft what we might consider now craft brewing. Yeah, um, but in England certainly there was a big tension between the big brewers and the traditional brewers. Yeah, um, so to the extent to which being a cheerleader saved it, then all power to him. Yeah. I'll just go out with one. That's kind of all I have to say. Uh, I'll go out with one quote. I don't know if you have any. Finishing comments? Uh, no, just kind of what I what I said before. Was, oh, we should listen to him. Actually, we have we do have a clip. We should do that before we go out. Oh, too. <laughs> uh, yeah, we have a clip. Uh, it's true. <laughs> this, this, this clip is a little kind of an inside joke too, from me to you. Uh, okay, all right. Well, I haven't heard it, so let's I know. Li- I, I I wanted you to not hear it. Okay, so. let's listen to it now. One of the social rituals of Prague is a glass of this very spicy dark lager and a snack of this extremely smelly cheese at this old tavern. They call it Ufleku, after the Flakowski family who founded it in 1499. It's the only place you can buy the Ufleku beer. 
They make it upstairs. This place is the oldest homebrew pub anywhere in the world. Uflecu brings together under one roof the Czech devotion both to taverns and to breweries. In the nation's capital, it's a living example of both, dating from the Holy Roman Empire, yet constantly, imperceptibly renewed. As you can see, it's a very traditional-looking brew house. After all, they have been making beer here for 500 years continuously. But five years ago, they refitted the whole place, spent quite a bit of money on it. And so far as I can see, they haven't changed a thing. Not much changes in the fabric of Prague, either. These are the streets trodden by Smetana and Dvorak, Kafka and Einstein. The buildings gently crumble, and are almost as slowly renovated. In a couple of dozen great beer taverns, the debates roll on. The Czech novelist Joseph Skorecki once said that the Bohemians seem to be solving the mystery of human existence when they talk about beer. Oh yeah, of course it had to be about Ufleku. <laughs> I'll never live that down. That's it, that's it. You and I have to go to Prague and you'll take me there. I will do that. <clears throat> we should definitely do that. Because I didn't get to tour the brewery and I've always wanted to do that too. Oh, so there you go. We've got to do it. And then you gave me stick for that. Yeah. Uh, but that's actually a good, especially that last quote where he... Uh, where he brings a lot of uh, erudition into into beer writing, and, and, and in this case, I suppose it's that Channel Four. Yes, uh, this yeah. is, that's right. It's from the Beer Hunter. Yeah. So uh, again, yeah. don't sue us. Yeah, I mean, but uh, but particularly when you think about English society, thinking about the sort of very you know erudite, eloquent person talking about beer is huge, right? I mean, beer is not something that that, that you associate with those things uh, prior to him. So totally. So uh, here's to Michael Jackson. A little uh, cheers. Cheers. <laughs> As a coda to his career, one of the things that he said on one of these uh, beer hunters, I think it was actually after the English one, he said, and I will just leave him here, leave the, leave the content here, the great beer... Beer brewing nations should be as proud of their beers as wine producing nations are of their wines. The beer world does have its champagne and its burgundies. And in their individuality and their complexity, the real ales of Britain are as the equal of the red wines of Bordeaux. Ah, well said. So well that's, said. that's how we approach beer. And therein completes our tour of his legacy. Excellent. Well, thank you very much for that introduction to, uh, to Michael Jackson. I, I learned a lot. Excellent. All right. So now we got to turn to the... Mailbag time. Mailbag. We have some mailbag. All right. What what do we have? Uh, the f You want to read the first one? The second one is for you. So okay. I'll read the second one. All right. All right. So this one uh, is from Pat Woodward. Um, and you have a parenthetical here that he did a chemistry PhD at, I assume, Oregon State, but now is at the other OSU, which could either be Ohio or Oklahoma State. Which oh, Ohio. Okay. Well, Ohio State. <laughs> uh, but he's in England for the year, uh, hopefully on a sabbatical. Yeah, I guess so. Uh, so, quote, <clears throat> I know that you and Patrick are fans of British beer, so I'm curious what you think about the fact that Camera, the... Uh, campaign for Real campaign Ale. Campaign for Real Ale. Yeah, but there's more letters there. Uh, okay, anyway, uh, is considering widening their remit to include quality beers that go beyond real ale. As an American temporarily living in Britain, it seems to me that there is some rivalry between newer craft brewers and the traditional brewers of cask ale that camera supports cask versus keg if you will 
What do you think is driving this, and how do you think craft brewers in the UK will respond if the changes go through? Well, that's actually a really excellent question, and it dovetails nicely with our Fuller's Dark Star. That's because, true. Because that's exactly what he's talking about. He's talking about the, the new craft brewers, um, uh, like Dark Star, and the traditional brewers have been around forever, but who have had this very, essentially, a craft product all along. Right. Uh, and the camera was all about preserving those brewers. Uh, just, just as we were talking about how Michael Jackson might have helped save DuPont, he might have also helped save brewers like Fuller's mm -hmm. from the onslaught of... Camera probably did more, but he is definitely a fan of those breweries. So. Right. But camera, so camera was all about trying to preserve, preserve that traditional beer served in a traditional way um, on cask. Uh, and these new brewers aren't so interested in tradition. They're really inspired, I think, by, well, a lot of them are inspired by the American craft beer scene and into sort of new beers, new things, big IPAs, all that, all that stuff. Um, the first thought I have in answering his question is that when we were there, I didn't sense, and of course this is just anecdotes, but I didn't sense attention. And we asked a lot of brewers about this, both sort of traditional and newer brewers. Um, this is my sense, and you can tell me what yours is, is that the traditional brewers appreciated the, the new craft brewers as uh, bringing attention to craft beer in general and as sort of injecting new life and new interest in it even if they weren't 100% complimentary of the beer itself, right? right. Uh, and the craft brewers, uh, I'm trying to choose my words, the modern craft brewers, American-style craft brewers, um, uh, I think appreciate the legacy and the craft of traditional brewers. Um, and, in, and in some cases, and I know Fuller's is one, were helped by tr those traditional brewers, um, and the traditional brewers that we were there, Fuller's was trying to pursue collaborations as well to kind of, uh, I don't know, hitch hitch themselves together in this in this sort of um, uh, renaissance of craft, both traditional and new. Yeah. What do you think? <laughs> I think, yeah, I do think that uh, cask is in real danger. And, and one of the reasons cask is in danger is because uh, it's not always kept well. And so people who try uh, uh, an old sour cask of beer don't like it mm -hmm. um maybe yep. the and, we, and we and we experienced that yeah we experienced that yeah. uh the cellarman maybe didn't let it settle and the finings are fishy in the beer or something you know it's a, it, it's a really hard beer to manage so I, I read something from somebody smart and i can't remember if it was pete brown or maybe boken bailey or uh john duffy at the beer nut somebody who is familiar with these beers wrote and i think this is right that there is a market for these beers and there's a natural equilibrium. And, and it may be that the best thing for cask beer is for it to shrink a little bit and for the, the beer that remains to be top quality. Because if people are exposed to top quality cask ale, uh, it's not in as nearly as much jeopardy as if they're exposed to a lot of mediocre cask ale. Yeah. So I was sort of answering the second part of the question, but you're getting into the minutiae of the first part, which is that camera has been extremely militant about about preserving the very traditional cask ale, which is uh, even to the extent to which I think they don't like if you uh, blow in CO2 on top of the cask and things like that. It's just an incredibly traditional presentation of real ale. Yeah. Um, which is great and probably helped preserve, as I say, the traditional brewers, but now is makes them limited to a very small sphere of influence. Yeah. Um, and 
I do think that there is this craft revolution that's happening in, in the UK <clears throat> as a model on the US that is 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 capable of basically promoting both. Yeah, I don't think that I don't if cask dies it's not gonna be because of craft keg. Right. It's gonna be because uh, you know, other market realities. Yeah. Um, I think the more the more interest in ales away from lagers, the better for cask. Um, breweries like Dark Star still make traditional mm-hmm. uh, cask ales. So, yeah, I it's, it's a challenging. I don't know what I would do if I were Camera or some of these others, but uh, these other advocacy groups, and it's really a big deal there. But from our distance, I would say. Uh, I, I do think Camera is a great organization, and it's great to have a hundred thousand people out there drinking craft ale. Um, but well, I, I wouldn't be worried about craft. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I think that it makes all kinds of sense for Camera to widen its uh, um, uh, its base and to say that part of what we do is going to promote cask ale and try to preserve it, and part of what we do is just going to promote craft in general because there still is. A, you know, it's still there's still a lot of tide houses. There's still a lot of uh, uh, um, uh, barriers and, and obstacles for craft beer to get into consumers' hands in, in the UK. And I think it could do it, it could become part of a broader av, ad, ad, advocacy group, um, and that would probably help its uh, mission to preserve calf, cascale. If that makes sense. Yeah. <clears throat> Okay. All right. The Next second one. one, we actually also touched on this too. So that's interesting. This comes to such pros. Uh, this comes from John from Bend. Uh, I actually know John, and I know that he just moved to Bend. So welcome to Bend, John. Um, and he's talking about distribution consolidation. Uh, he writes when a distributor sells out. Uh, it often sells its license to be the sole distributor of a brewery to a larger distributor where a brewery's crucial share of mine will be diluted often significantly. Uh, we talked about this. Um, and then he describes how that process, uh, goes. Um, this trend is defended by the authorities as natural free market economics, but is it something of a paradox that the free market economics is rampant in an industry that itself is a contrived government intervention? Okay, so uh, I think w- you you can help me out here. So he's referring to the the point that when you sign up with a distributor, you sign a contract that that ties you to that distributor for a certain point for a certain amount of time. Right. Right. And and, then, and I think he doesn't necessarily uh, mention this, but also the whole distribution tier is government mandated too. So that's also a factor in there, probably. Well, right. But what he's referring to is the fact that if I'm a brewer, I have no say. If right. my distributor gets sold, then Which I'm now a, a client of. Columbia Distributing in our case. Right, which right. is exactly what's happening with uh, some of these distributors. Right, so some of these distributors sign on with a small person that they did. They made the choice that I want to go with someone small who's going to, I'm going to be a sm- part of their portfolio, a bigger bigger share of their, <laughs> their little portfolio, and suddenly now I get sold, but I can't do anything about it. Yeah. That's that's the question. Okay, so now <laughs> so that's, the, that's the context of the question. Uh, this trend is defended by authorities as, free, as natural free market. You know, it's something of paradox. Free market is a rampant industry that itself can try government intervention. Okay, so um, what? <laughs> what it, was, it was directed specifically at you, so you better. 
<laughs> say something smart now. Uh, well, okay. So the first thing is that if you really, if you really want to defend this from, a, or if you really want the free market take, the free market take is that you should have choice. Sure. And so uh, brewers should be free to choose. Um, I think that the fact that you have to sign up for a contract uh, is is a bad thing. Um, that contract should be freely negotiated. So if I negotiate a contract with with um, uh, who did General Distributing buy? I can't remember the name now. Columbia bought General Distributing. Uh, sorry, Columbia bought General Distributing. So if I sign a contract with General, General Distributing, then that should, um, well, I should have the option of signing a contract that's, that uh, determines whether that contract expires should General Distributing be bought out. So the, <clears throat> excuse me, the whole sort of fundamental uh, philosophy of free market economics is choice. And so I don't, Anything that binds uh, uh, brewers uh, unnaturally is is uh, always sort of questionable and needs to be justified in my in in my economist mind uh, by some kind of market failure that they're correcting. Uh, in this case, I don't know why the government would um, uh, one mandate long contracts uh, and two mandate that they continue through these kinds of uh, acquisitions. Yeah. The <clears throat> The the contracts in question are called franchise uh, contracts. They're mm -hmm. and they're governed by franchise laws, and the the you know the the permanence of them is a is a government invention. And and um, you know another uh, uh, Coca Cola also has distributors, and I don't think the same thing applies. Yeah, I imagine that there was a time point in time where this made there was some there must have been some justification for this, and that might I, have been. I some, think it had to do with the making sure that the the three-tier system was so solid. So you put the power of those relationships in the middle tier so that distribute, so that brewers, they don't become puppets for brewers. Right. Yeah, that's true. So I suppose you could, that would be a sense to limit brewer, brewer power, brewery power yeah. uh, from like quickly um, uh, jumping ship. But I think in this, in this day and age, I don't see much justification for it because, um, at least in Oregon, there was a fairly competitive, it's, it's becoming more consolidated, but a fairly competitive uh, distribution environment. Um, and uh, being able to uh, introduce the discipline of the market, shall we say, yes. to, to distributors is a good thing, that you, you, have, to, you have to perform for your, for your clients or the clients will go elsewhere. And limiting that basically allows distributors to essentially rent seat potentially. Like if they know they've got an expiring contract soon, then they might push that beer. Mm -hmm. And then the one that doesn't expire for three years, they might not worry so much about right now. Mm. And so that creates perverse incentives too. To That's me. interesting. Uh, so I kind of get that. You know, I, I understand this, the idea behind the, the, uh, the three-tier system, and I'm still agnostic about how I believe it would work in the absence of a, of a, of a three-tier system because I do think that there is a potential for... Uh, too much concentration happening in the absence of it. You get you get brewers that are too influential that take up too much shelf space. If that makes sense. Sure. Yeah. Um, so and, I Anheuser Busch stands as a pretty yeah exactly. So so I you know I I it's really hard to know the counterfactual, but I'm scared. I would be scared if all of a sudden distributors went away. If that three tier system went away, it's it's interesting, but it's you know you don't want 
the beer aisle to look like the cereal aisle, right? Right. <laughs> yeah. We've seen that before, and that's not so wonderful. So, so yeah. So I guess that's that's what I have to say on that. <laughs> I have nothing to add. Uh, we will. I do think at some point we're going to talk it's, to a distributor, and these issues will come up. And yeah. It'll be interesting. That's um, going to be such. Can, a, that's going to be such a good podcast. I know. Right? <laughs> Let's we finally get around to it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we're 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 dragging along on this podcast. We better wrap it up. But All I right. hope I hope you enjoyed it. Um, please be in touch with us uh one of the things that occurred to me as we were as we were uh podcasting is uh you should uh contact us let us know what your five desert island hops would be oh yeah for example and if you have uh early experience with michael jackson if michael jackson changed the way you think about beer let us know these are the kinds of things we'd love to hear from you absolutely so how do you do it well you can get in touch uh through the Beervana blog Facebook page is a really good way to get in touch. You can email Jeff at beervanablog.com. Uh, you can also uh, give us a message through Twitter. Uh, Jeff is at Beervana and I'm at Beernomics. And also make sure that you rate the Beervana podcast on iTunes or your favorite uh, podcast service. Oh, yeah. Good. Uh, we have an update here. Uh, we, we grew, again, since our last time we announced our ratings, we grew another 40%. You'll remember we grew 40% the last time. So I don't remember. I don't even know what that means. Growth, good. growth is okay, growth. Okay, We want growth, so Although, do it. the last time we grew only to 19 ratings, and this time we grew to 28 ratings. So we only still have 28 ratings. So I'm hoping we can get up to like 50 Oh, I see. Now I understand. These are just people who've bothered to rate us. Yeah. Only 28 of you? Only 28. That's so we can do sad. better. We can do better. We can. You can do better. Uh, I don't know how to influence that anymore. Well, so we did. We did have. We did. We were. We are growing by forty percent. So let's just keep it up, and if, then pretty soon we'll be at a reasonable amount. Yeah, if we can make it to a hundred, we'll do that. We'll do that distribution. distribution <laughs> we're not doing it until we get a hundred reviews. Yeah, uh, I'm not sure that's the best bait, but um, <laughs> but if it works for you, please do. All right. Uh, yeah. So rate us on iTunes. Subscribe on iTunes, and SoundCloud, other, Google Play, yeah, all those things, all, all the good things that you're supposed to do, all the, the things that the professional podcast tell you to do, do them for us. That's too, right. <laughs> <laughs> yes. All right. So I told you how to get in touch. Uh, yeah. Go all, read. Go read uh, Jeff's blog at uh, Beer on a Blog. All we have to do is say goodbye. All right. I'm she, taking Orval because it's my Christmas beer. Yeah, you should. Uh, besides, I've, I've had most of it anyway. <laughs> uh, all right. I'm having the uh, the Hazy Little Thing IPA from Sierra Nevada, which is delightful. Go find it in your local shelves. All right. Cheers, Patrick. Cheers. Cheers.